Good morning. Lovely to have you all so far away as usual. Have we ever had grandiose dreams of having disciples like at our feet? You've definitely subverted that. Well done. Uh, we're doing a series on the Bibles, and I've, I've got two alternate titles, oh, one with a lowercase and one with a largercase, depending on which you feel more comfortable with. So if you feel like you're being crushed by the weight of the authority of the text, you can have this one. If you feel like the text has been undermined and uh, we're not taking it seriously, you can have this one here. So I'd like to provide lots of options here for you. And we'll do the old lightning test. God seems fine with it. Good. Excellent. So we are doing a series on the Bible. And this is uh, pretty bold for our community. We spend the start of each series doing a bit of uh, exploration into what our relationship is with the topics that we've got, that we are um, talking about. And it turns out that uh, hardly anyone in our community has picked up their Bible in a long time, which was a complete shock to Rod and I. Um, not at all. Uh, but some of us really love it, which is nice too. And so we've got a broad spectrum of people here. Uh, for those who, uh, who find it problematic or boring or traumatizing or anxiety-inducing, uh, we are going to try and work through some of the roadblocks to the text. Uh, could someone turn the urn down? <laughs> Sorry, our urn goes crazy. It gets excited about the Bible and destroys our wall. So... Those who are on the podcast, you can probably skip that bit. Um, so what we try and do with most of our series is try and work our way towards green pastures, which is our kind of like metaphorical way of talking about being comfortable and rejuvenated and, and nourished by something. And we understand that for a community as diverse as this, that isn't always possible. But for, um, you know, where we try and head is to try and work towards a place where we get, can get nourishment out of something. And... Um, try and make this a nourishing community and we have hopes lots of us have hopes that the bible could be a nourishing place for us and so we are working through some of our roadblocks uh, and so we talked about a series of assumptions that kind of came out in our feedback assumptions that have people have about the text that um we might be able to work our way through assumptions that have uh made getting to the text challenging and so uh i have kind of summarized these for the last few weeks um so I thought I'd kind of crowdsource this for those of you who have been around because I can't be bothered doing it myself again. Um, assumption number one was that the Bible should have more bullet points. Um, for those of us who are raised on the Bible as an instruction manual for life uh, idea, which is great because there's lots of instructions in it, but sometimes when you get to the point where um, you're trying to work out what to do with not mixing two types of cloths or coming under a curse from God because you did, it can be difficult to apply. Does someone want to summarize? Um, uh, actually, so our alternative that, we've, that we talked about was the idea of turning the gem. Does anyone want to have a crack at summarizing the turning of the gem so we can have someone's voice other than mine? I know you want to. Oh, the, the children are revolting. Uh, anyone? Does anyone want to do turning the gym? Oh, thanks, Warwick. This is definitely under a sense of obligation because no one else is. <laughs> and Warwick gets anxiety if no one's helping, so. <laughs> uh, I, just to start with the previous point you made that the Bible, people who see the Bible, no, what was it, where's the problematic if the Bible doesn't have enough bullet points? I liked that one because I remember you uh, nicely putting it, saying that there are people who want to take the Bible as... Uh, able to give us instructions for, for anything in life and and they reduce and reduce and reduce the story until eventually there's just like one instruction that comes out of a massive chapter or a massive book or a bunch about a whole bunch of stories. Whereas, so the problem with that is that every time we reduce and reduce, we, we miss some of the nuance, we miss some of how it might apply to life now, thousands of years later, because we've got so much different stuff going on. Um, so yeah, if we treat the Bible like a gem where we just we read big chunks of it and we then we have big discussions about it and how overall the you know, uh, indicative parts, sorry, the useful parts have come out. That's better. That's it. 
It's really good, thank you. Anything to add to that from anyone? Good. Um, sometimes when the entire community is hungover, it takes a while to, you know, get, the, get this bit going. Um, so the rabbinic idea is that the, the Bible is like a gem. The text is like a gem that every time you turn it and look through a different facet, you see something new. Uh, that the idea of engagement with the text is not to close it down, but to open it up. So we try and ask questions that open the text up. We, when we read a text, rather than kind of going to the bullet point answer that we know the text is supposed to mean, because we all know that it means that thing, we ask questions like, I notice and I wonder to try and explore the text further. Um, and this, for us, is a way of taking the text seriously rather than just coming with the um, pre-prepared prepared answer that our small group leader provided for us to actually wrestle with it. And as Rod discussed, that's, that's a very Jewish idea. In the synagogue in Jesus' time, they would dance around the text and then they would read the text and then they would discuss what could this mean. And it wasn't just kind of random making stuff up things. It was actually exploring the tradition of what this has meant. It was exploring what's going on, um, what God might be doing amongst us at this particular time. Um, so being sensitive to our experience, being sensitive to what the Spirit might be doing, being sensitive to what the tradition might be saying um, about the text and bringing those things together to see if God has something for us in this time and in this place. All right. Um, second assumption um, was the Bible was written in a vacuum. And this is called what we've called the blank page idea. And basically, because it doesn't sound like you guys are talking yet, it's only 11.10, so, you know, we'll wait till 11.30 to get something out of you. Um, the idea behind this one, which if you want, you can kind of listen back if you want a bit more detail on it, but it's this kind of um, way we have of perceiving the Bible that, uh, that no one knew anything about God until God showed up and told us what happened in the beginning. So basically, there's a whole bunch of people sitting around, uh, you know, not really thinking about anything. And then one of them goes, I wonder, you know, I wonder where this, uh, uh, you know, what, what the meaning of life is. I wonder whether there's something behind this all. And then God showed up and gave us Genesis and said, you know, in the beginning I did this, and then I did that, and then I did this, and then I did this, and someone's got cramp writing it all down. Um, when in actual fact, people have thought about God for a long, long time, and our texts came quite late in that piece. Um, and we call this the sculpture idea, that God takes what is already there within stories and works within it, um, shaping and crafting and molding. A really good, I mean, cre the creation story is a great example of this. Mesopotamian myth existed for a long, long time. And when you read Genesis and you read ancient Mesopotamian myths, there's massive parallels between these two things, which shouldn't be a surprise because people are drawing from the same stories. But there's these twists in the text that show something quite different. The Mesopotamian creation myths have the gods at war slaying one another, cutting one open, and the earth and the universe was born out of that. In Genesis, you've got this act, profound act of love making sense and order out of this mess. And so the question is, is it all God or is it no God? Or is God actually working and shaping the stories that we already have to show God's self in amongst it? Does that make any sense? I know we're moving quite fast because we're trying to like get onto this week's stuff, but you know. Um, so then last week's assumption, oh, we haven't got there yet. Um, oh, wait. Last week's assumption was when the Bible says God, it's God. And this is kind of how I was raised to read the text that whenever you read God in the Bible, that it's God. Someone like, and took a photo, and that was, like, that's what God was saying and doing. Um, the problem with this is the longer you sit with the text is that God does lots of things and said a lot of things, and they don't always mash together. Either God did flood the earth, build, bust down a tower, tell people to, to commit genocide, or a man, a man to kill his son, um, tell people to invade a land, or something else is going on. Do we try and create a paper mache God out of all the conflicting images? Or is there another option? How do you marry it all up as a Christian? So one of our kind of central gathering points as a community is keeping Jesus as the center of our community. Could you see Jesus, who on the cross said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That same Jesus, could you see that Jesus drowning babies? In the Noah's Ark story? How do you hold those two things together? 
Is it that we can't believe the Bible anymore? Or is it that maybe we've been using the Bible in a way that it wasn't intended? Um, is this a bikini line trimmer? Or is it an egg beater? If you use stuff for the wrong things, the results can be really traumatic and painful. And lots of us have sat with Scripture in a way that's really hurt us, but feel compelled to keep using it that way. Um, I would argue that Christian tradition opens up a whole range of possibilities to how Scripture has been used faithfully. And lots of the ways, lots of the assumptions that we're working from are really, really recent innovations. We've been told that it's the way it's always been done. But the more you study church history, it's just not the case. And so one way of approaching um, the God in the Bible is this idea of the God character, and that's kind of what I want to expand on today. I've taken a few weeks with this because for some people this is a really big, um, really difficult idea. There's our God character. So what we proposed last week is seeing God in the text as the God character. What does that mean? It means that God is presented as acting in particular ways. But our job is to wrestle with that, to open up the text. Is it God? Is it not God? Or is it God working in these stories? In Job, God has a counsel. So Job is probably the earliest text that we have. I know we all think that Genesis is because it was the first one and it says in the beginning, but that probably came much later. But Job, in Job, God holds this counsel where he brings all of his angels together like some kind of CEO, and Satan's one of them, <laughs> the deceiver. And then Satan and God have this argument about this dude. <laughs> Now, did that actually happen? Is that how heaven works? Is Satan one of God's guys? What do we do with that text? How do we marry it with the other ways that God's described in the Bible? If we have to take everything like it's a photograph and then try and put those photographs together to make a picture of God, it's really, really difficult. But if we see that these are understandings of the divine from ancient times and ancient places that are being shaped towards a particular thing, we can open ourselves to the possibility that God is actually present in those stories, but not always exactly where we expect to see him. We talked a couple of weeks ago about Noah's Ark, which is the worst children's story of all time, but it's got animals in it, so we all buy them the picture, the picture book. In Noah's Ark, again, flood stories weren't new with Noah's Ark. Flood stories existed all around the ancient world. And usually they would, had something to do with the fact that either the gods were annoyed that enough sacrifices weren't given, so they got hungry, or that the slave race called humanity was created and they were too noisy and woke the gods up and so they flooded the earth for that reason. In this story, in the Noah's Ark story, as we walk through it, we see it moves towards this finish where God floods the earth because everyone was really, really bad and then goes, oh, I'm never doing that again. What questions does that ask? That God critiques God's actions within the text. Is that an endorsement of genocide? Or is it a critique of trying to wipe everything out? If you take this super literal way, you have to say, I love you to someone who is willing to drown babies. Just sit with that for a second. But if you take it as a shaping story, these stories of floods where the gods did things because they were just a bit irritated and then just wiped out a whole bunch of people. And in this text, God says this will never happen again. Where God says a relationship of trust is worth something. 
where God says, where God makes promises and is now obliged to react to humans in particular ways, this is a massive leap forward in how we see the divine. The idea that God's moving away from total destruction on a whim is a radical and huge leap. Was that God or was it a movement away from how people understood the divine? So what do we do with the text? How do we perceive what the ancients did with it? Are the people lying when they say they heard God? Are they deluded or something else? And before we get too far down the track, I just want to clear up that I'm not proposing that God is not in these texts. Now, you don't have to agree with me, of course, but I actually feel a strong sense that God is involved and that God is involved in the whole story. And partly that's because I believe that God is still involved in the world now. I just think there's a difference between people's descriptions of God and who God is. Peter Enns, a guy who um, has a podcast called, he's a New Testament theologian, has a podcast called The Bible for Normal People, which I quite like, um, also wrote a book called The Bible Tells Us So. Um, also a really good read. He says, God let his children tell the story. God let his children tell the story. So I, I got... Um, This is, three, this is Rod, if you didn't know, which you should. Again, that was just total giveaway. So Rod's got a daughter, Tilly, who's now six. But when Tilly was three, she drew this picture of Rod. I was going to use one of Hemi's, but Hemi, my son, but um, Hemi's picture's not quite there yet. This is incredibly sophisticated. Um, this is a picture of three-year-old Tilly's dad, Rod, which rhymes with God, so it's the perfect, like, I know, illustration. I'm a professional. Now, if I was to say, hey, everyone, this is Rod, you could rightly tell me, no, it's not, because Rod's over there. This is an artist's impression of God. A three-year-old artist's impression of God. Oh, sorry, of Rod. I get them confused. When you work this closely with Rod, he's so Christ-like, it's hard to tell sometimes. Now this and Rod are not the same. In fact, if this was a police sketch, I reckon about half of you would get arrested <laughs> before Rod did. But what if Rod is in there? Have you seen that smile? At that moment, Rod may have been happy, or at least have been smiling. Rod might not have been happy, but sometimes you lie to your children. Hemi's got this new game where he hits me in the head and I show a sad face to show that I'm sad now. And he says, he just looks at me and laughs for a while. It's a good instinct. And he says, I love you. And I have to smile now to show that it's all okay. Those eyes are really kind, piercingly blue, like they've been stolen from a wolf, but really kind. This is an artist's impression of someone. Now, is this none of Rod or all of Rod? Or is Rod emerging in this picture? I'd argue the latter. And this is what I think is happening in the text. Second little illustration I want to use is stolen from um, a guy called Greg Boyd, who wrote a really tiny little book, two volumes long, about 1,600 pages, um, called The Crucifixion of the Warrior God. 
Um, quite brilliant. And he uses this illustration. Uh, trigger alert, this contains <laughs> colonization and missionaries. So, you know, just bear with me, but try and get the gist of the story. So imagine some missionaries from America, because that's where all missionaries come from, going off to the beautiful country of Africa. It's a wonderful place. That was a joke, by the way. Um, just sort of get crucified. They go and visit a tribe that's never seen missionaries before or anyone from America, and they go to live among the people. And when they get there, there are all kinds of, obviously, there are all kinds of tribal customs and rituals going on. One of them is female circumcision or female genital mutilation. The missionaries are naturally horrified at this practice, especially because it's been done in such an unsafe way that girls are dying of it, which is really common. What do they do? They know that in the long run, if change is ever going to be ever going to happen, it's going to happen at the idea level. So they might be able to stop one girl undergoing this process, but chances are they'll be killed at that point, <laughs> and no one will be around to stop it. So they live among the people, and at least try and get the ritual done hygienically. So work with them to make it hygienic so at least girls aren't dying. If the missionary ever hopes to have the tribe eventually embrace the gospel and abandon their inhumane customs. Now, can we just add a distinction here that there's important culture in both Eastern and Western that rituals matter, but also that this practice should be resisted. It's complicated. But that they must rather initially accept the culture of the tribe as it is and gradually earn the right to be heard by demonstrating God's love as they sow seeds of the gospel that they hope will bear fruit in years to come. We might say that the missionary must for a while bear the sin of the tribe, and take on the appearance of condoning a sinful custom if they ever hope to free the tribe from their bondage to their inhumane tradition. Imagine that many years later, the tribe comes around and goes, we want to embrace this idea that all people are created equal and that this is actually an inhumane act and then look back at the missionary's activity and go, wait a minute, maybe you were never pro this in the first place, but you tried to move it towards something at least safer in the meantime. In the Bible, we have a God who appears to swim in a sea of differing ideas of the divine. Assuming that God has always been present, but that no one has seen God as God is, God is continuing a journey of self-revelation, but can only do so through the constructs that already exist. Because they carry stories, this view of God is shaped in stories throughout history. So when we see God doing things in the text, we at least have to have some concept of how God was already being seen. How far can God take us? How much can God shape us? As far as we are willing to go. God continues to show up, providing as much change as we can metabolize. When you think about faith crises or, or changes in your perception of God that have happened over your lifetime and how traumatic some of them have been for you, I'm 38, and I've probably had about three or four major faith crises in my life where circumstances or understanding or different things have radically changed how I've seen God. 
Has God been the same the entire time? I think God has. But how hard it is to come to grips, to let go of a view of God that you've been so familiar with, even if you haven't liked it, it's still hard to let go of. Now imagine this story playing out across thousands of years. How can, we, can this idea... Actually, before we go on, I'm going to tell a little story, but before we do, does anyone have responses to this idea? Anxiety or excitement or questions or pushback or anything? I'm not going to necessarily respond to them all because I'd just rather a, an airing of <laughs> feelings. But anyone having any particular kinds of reactions to this idea? There's no right and wrong answers. Except for Jesus, that's always the right answer. In that case, Jesus. No. Um, my instant response was like a deep sense of apology for all we have made God to be when God wasn't. You know? I guess I'll take a tentative hand if that's all we've got. Uh, as someone who likes to get things right, it's it's difficult to accept the idea that I'm going to continue to have really wrong ideas and there's sort of no way around that, but that's just part of the ongoing revelation of God. Mm. Maybe as someone who likes to feel right, I worry that I am actually in the inhumane tradition category and just telling myself that it's okay. Um, it just makes me think, as you look at the Bible and the Bible stories in dialogue with other stories of the time going, no, that can't be right, or, oh, that's interesting, maybe we'll incorporate that. Just um, once you let go of certainty in the picture of God that you have currently and are open to the fact that for the rest of your life you're going to learn more, suddenly your relationship with other people is transformed and you, you go, I need you, I need you to help me to continue moving forward. I need community, I need dialogue with very different people from me to keep cracking open the inhumane dimension and um, keep moving forward. It also makes you hope that God is really gracious and loving and embracing and forgiving so that all of the things that you're getting wrong and will continue to get wrong until you die um, are contained by grace. The thing it makes me think about is sometimes I'm sure we just come up with creative solutions. There's a, I don't know if anyone's been up north to the islands above Darwin, but um, there's a community up there that uh, the priest was known, there was, there was a probably, well, the priest saw a problem in the fact that the girls were getting married off really young and not able to go and study. So he had to work within the community. His solution at the time was to marry all of the girls so that they would go get to have an education, go to school and not have to be child brides at the time. So sometimes creativity can sort a few things out. Still in good standing with the church? <laughs> hmm. One of my first senses when I kind of stumbled upon this idea is just the idea of just going, thank God that God's bigger In the kind of tiny box. And how disappointing if God could be contained by a text. But how disappointing if God couldn't be revealed in a text. This is kind of dual thing of how amazing that God is gracious enough. I mean, like, as a bit of a perfectionist when I'm in my unhealthiest place, 
The idea of letting someone else represent me and get it wrong and still show up. The idea of this kind of, I'm like an all or nothing kind of person. The idea of just thousands of years of people kind of getting it and kind of not, and it's still happening. And God's still going, I love you enough that I'm trying to appear amongst you. That to me is amazing and generous. If your kids could tell the story of you without you (laughs) getting to speak over them. This section's called, Where Was God When I Was a Pentecostal Nutcase? There'll be elements for some of you that was that's very familiar in the story and some that will be mind-boggling. I don't have time to explain it all, so if this makes no sense. One of the great joys of working with Rod is that um, I used to think that I knew everything that was wrong with the church coming from Pentecostalism, um, but meeting a Sydney Anglican, <laughs> I realized that half the things I think were wrong with the church actually might not have been that bad. And more graciously that all traditions actually have some real beauty among them. But anyway, so this is a minority experience, but it's one. Um, I spent a good many years of my life in Pentecostal revivalism before we moved into Pentecostal megachurch land. Um, Both are great. Um, We, Pentecostalism has a huge emphasis, if you haven't heard of it, on experiential, the experiential, and of course, there's no such thing as the singular experience of Pentecostalism, but mine is representative of some people's experience. Um, There's a huge range in scope in how you're supposed to experience God. Um, But in terms of the the physical, like, most of us get raised with an expectation that, you know, when we're reading a Bible, having a prayer time, there'll be like some kind of strange warming in our heart. Um, And that that's one end of the spectrum right down to the other end of the spectrum where people are being thrown across rooms um, and others are cutting their casts off to run um, on their now-healed broken legs so they can raise someone from the dead. You laugh. Um, Pentecostals are expected to be able to hear God really clearly. And again, the range ranges from having a strange sense of something fuzzy that you need to tell someone that God loves them right through to <laughs> um, diabolical warnings of imminent calamity that the young people are bringing upon the world. They don't stop touching themselves already. In my world, words of knowledge and prophecy, which are kind of this, these ideas that God speaks in and through people, were throwing around, thrown around with not-so-gay abandon, um, I'm not sure exactly the number of careers I've had foretold for my future, but suffice to say, I've got a lot of work to do if I'm going to keep up with Jesus, because <laughs> I've had most of them. Um, the sports one, still coming, I guess. I'm 38, and I think the oldest guy to ever make the Olympics starting a sport, he started trampolining at 38 and made the Olympics, so that might be my one. Um, a good friend of mine got told by a visiting minister that she was going to start a dance school of prophetic movement that was literally going to shake the foundations of New Zealand, which was, phys- which was actually figurative, um, and bring the nation to Christ, which again was also physical, uh, f- figurative. Um, when this prophecy about her starting a dance school was given, I laughed because I'd seen her dance. <laughs> and I got told off for my lack of faith. So, Danielle, if you ever listen to this, I'm still waiting. I'm a bit worried about the foundations of New Zealand being shaken without her dancing, let alone adding that on top. The amazing thing about this kind of spiritual intensity is how real it all seems when you're in the bubble of that kind of community. Part of the process is to suppress unbelief so that you don't let your mind get in the way of what God's trying to do amongst you which in that context makes a lot of sense because you actually have to suppress a lot to believe those things. So to bring revival, you have to have all-night prayer meetings at New Year's that God might save the people drinking alcoholic beverages at parties. Um, And you agonize and torment yourself about any ungodly thought you had about Janine Benson. 
and you hold each other wailing for your friends who are going to burn forever, and you promise to give $1,000 in an offering, $1,000 you don't have, um, as the offering message descends into its second hour with 2,000 terrified and excited young people. And you fall down as you run through the fire, fire tunnel, ask me later, um, hoping that it was God and a special guest speaker might pick you out to promise you amazing things in your future if you fell down that particular way. And then after 10 years, revival still hasn't come from the east or the west or the north or the south. And you're really tired and you can't muster another round of groveling and self-flagellation for all the self-flagellation you've been doing. And God hasn't given you the spouse of your dreams. And now you've made it in ministry and you're spending time in the green room, ask me later, where all the special speakers hang out and you realize way too many of them are actually assholes um, and aren't actually very godly people at all but are manipulative and deceptive. We're just really deluded. And the feelings begin to fade and the curtain is pulled back and you realize how manipulative so many of these contexts are and the psychology and the group think and the power dynamics. And so with great angst, you leave. You leave the God that you knew, and it's really hard and really traumatic, and you leave the community. And when you finally extract yourself from that bubble and your head stops reeling, your immediate instinct, which is often driven by a sense of shame and betrayal, is to burn everything from that life. How stupid were we? What was that even all about? Why did we waste so many years? You've seen some weird things. You've seen some terrible things. You've seen some really cruel things. And with all that craziness and all that manipulation, with all those things that are so far away from the God that you saw in Jesus, surely none of it was real and surely God was not there. But as time passes, some of us are still haunted by these strange and genuinely transformational moments that are hard to rationalize. As a kid who was bullied for years, who was trying to find a place in the world, the sense of belonging, the sense of welcome, the understanding of myself as someone who's beloved by God, those moments where I was incredibly alone yet felt that God's presence was there with me in really tangible ways and ways that actually might have saved me from myself. the ways we felt guided on important decisions, the ways we were comforted, the ways we were carried through difficult times, were provided for in incredible and unexplainable ways. So the question we ask ourselves was, was it God or not? Which is a good start, but I think maybe misunderstands how God might work in the world. Oh, oh I missed a slide. Oh, here we go. Nah, we got it. Maybe better questions are, was where was God present in those moments? And what wasn't God but was us? And what might God have been doing within our limited understanding of God? What if God is within our stories, not dictating to us, but leading and nudging and shaping and wooing? What if God met us there with all of our flawed views of who God was, and rather than giving us nothing because we had it all wrong, was so generous, so generous that God would actually give us something even in the midst of all of that. God or not God, or God's spirit hovering over the mess of our constructs and ideas, bringing life and order wherever she can. When I look back on my experience, some of the weird and stupid ways I thought God was present, which I then burned Upon reflection and more time, I actually think God was involved in so much of that. Not the damaging bits, not the bits where God was misrepresented, but that God is actually big enough to just continue to show up. Through all of those grotesque systems, to still meet people, still comfort people, still show people that they are loved. And I think that God draws us out of those systems sometimes too. But what if God is doing the same here now? What if we've got God all wrong? But God is continuing to show up, continuing to show up in this place with all of our questions and honoring our search for God.
and actually being present amongst what's happening here. This is not a story of they had it wrong and now we have it right. It's a story of the faithfulness of God, which again, if you look throughout Scripture over and over again, one of the resounding stories is that God keeps on meeting people and God keeps on showing up. What if your crazy God experience that you don't know what to do with might have had a, God, a bit of God peeking through somewhere amongst all that mess? And if you missed out on crazy God experiences, congratulations and I'm sorry. They do sound fun, don't they? I'm going to eat lunch in a minute. We're going to have communion as well. Usually on community lunch weeks, I remember to tell people we don't need communion because we're having communion with community lunch. But, you know, we can say no to a bit of Jesus juice. <laughs> but before we do, does anyone have responses to that? You might need some more time to process. You might have really horrible things to say that you don't want to say in public. That's okay. You can email me later. In caps lock. It's always the best way. Pick a good font. I feel like um, I'm listening to my story, listening to you. Um, certainly get the whole Pentecostal thing. Um, really interesting because, of course, since you've started this whole Bible teaching thing, um, those have been the questions in my head. Were those crazy experiences and I did see some wonderful things and experienced some great stuff and um, but I saw the mess as well and you know chucked a lot out but the last you know three four weeks I've been thinking was it real was it real and the one and I suppose today is just a total confirmation for me uh, because I kept thinking and it felt so real, and but um, your explanation was for me is just like revelation because it's it was God's way of being able to speak to me in the mess. Um, and I look at every what I would consider supernatural experience I had was always in my lowest and most desperate time of my life he like came through with an answer that just was just amazing and gave me hope and courage to keep going to the next step. So um, it's nice to hear, hey, he actually was in there. It wasn't just my imagination because uh, I actually feel, yeah, he's, yeah, it's good. Anyway. Yeah, some similar um, experiences Pentecostal-wise, but maybe not as extreme as yours. Um, but just thinking back to some of the meetings and the power, the abuse of power and the manipulation, I think it's sometimes easy to remember the negative. But when I also think back, there were some pretty godlike supernatural things that happened. And also when I think about the people who were there with me, they were very genuine in their love of God um, and have been some of the most loving Christians I've ever known. And so God wasn't completely absent. Um, I love that thought of God honours the search for God. And I think, yeah, I feel like that is a summary of whenever I look at someone that I feel like is so far from... Um, right thinking about God, whatever that is, um, but see God's influence in their life. Yeah, I think that God honouring the fact that the pursuit of him, I think, is yeah, what I have. Such a generous view, hey? Anyone else? Any questions? Any pushback? Just good way of gauging where we need to go next. Anyone from a different 
God world? Does these overlaps or? Yeah, I guess, you know, getting back to the Sydney Anglican thing. Um, <clears throat> with my tradition, the big thing was that we, we had it right and other people were wrong. Um, that we understood the Bible correctly and they understood the Bible incorrectly. And yeah, that's right. I didn't even need the Holy Spirit to get it right, which is pretty awesome. Imagine the size of those brains. Um, and how, um, how easy it is to just make exactly the same mistake in a different form. So to go, yeah, nah, actually we have it right and you have it wrong. And uh, that's why, you know, my favourite <laughs> thing this morning was just that acknowledgement that we all are and will continue to get it wrong and that that requires incredible humility and it is, isn't it great that God is humble enough to uh, to bear with us and keep showing up um, so it's just oh, what what an amazing relief to go I don't need to be more right than other people I just have to honor the search as I see it in their lives I'm going back to the text and I have to belittle the ancients how stupid they were to think that God did this and God did that. But to acknowledge that God is working in that time and that place just like God is working now and hopefully taking us somewhere. Um, I actually find the second sentence really kind of traumatizing, I think, because I come from the background where it was always me that was wrong and always God that was right. And so everything terrible that happened to me is my fault and everything good that happened to me was God's fault. And so I look there and actually feel just really jarred by that. And I, I think I just wonder how to see that sentence differently because I don't know how to. Um, yeah. Any suggestions on that? How to see that second sentence differently? Oh, sorry, the second sentence for you podcast people who are lazy enough not to show up this morning but still want to steal our material. Um, what wasn't God? What wasn't God but was us? Yeah, I think, I think it just takes us back to our prayer series. And if you've got a view of God, that God can do whatever God wants. Um, and so if bad things happen in your life, that's your fault, and if good things happen, that's what God is doing, then that is an extremely traumatizing idea. But if, if you believe that God is doing everything that God can in circumstances to, to turn them to the good, but that there are all sorts of things that God cannot do, and it's not to do with our resistance internally necessarily, but to do with the circumstances and all, all sorts of things that are outside of our control, then you... It's liberating in a way to go, well, sometimes bad things happen. doesn't matter what I do and what God does. Sometimes bad things happen. Um, and so that kind of binary view of everything bad is my fault is um, lifted off our, our shoulders. I'd also say maybe let's broaden the us. <laughs> so what wasn't God but us? What systems and structures and other people and power structures and all of those things are involved. I mean, I think just naming that, I, I when I exited my environment, I had to do an enormous amount of naming and just going, that system was, there were things that went on that we were put under that we had, you know, as kids had no capacity to resist, but they were manipulative and not okay. Um, I'd still count that under us, but I wouldn't count that under me. <laughs> But then to also look at where I participated in things as well and just to go, again, if we have a God who punishes us forever for ever getting it wrong, then the stakes are massive. If we have a God who says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, then that changes the narrative a little. Any more responses? Ron, did you have something? Did you have a hand up? Oh, no. Mm. 
we should release the children. I think they may have actually tied Jess and Tessa up. <laughs> They've got them in a pot <laughs> for community lunch. Uh, okay, let's release the children. Okay. Um, well, since we already have lunch together, we have proper lunch. You can have micro lunch if you want, but um, we're just going to eat and drink together for community lunch, and that is our communion the way it originally was before whoever it is brought in micro Jesus. Um, so we'd love to invite you to stick around. Um, is anyone going to Peter, Mon- Peter Monty's that wants to lead the Peter Monty's train? You don't actually have to do the locomotion the whole way. But just sometimes handy for... Cool. Awesome. Alex and Tiana are doing that. They do everything as a couple. Um, uh, okay, not true at all. Just clearing that up again for the podcast. Esther? Okay. Don't go too crazy. Okay. Yeah. The Greeks have no respect. Yeah. No respect. Yeah. For for the inner north. Um, Wonderful. (laughs) Cool, cool. Okie dokie. We're going to eat and drink together soon. So um, we'll just get some tables together down this end, and then if you are going to Peter Monty's, if you can leave sooner rather than later so that the food arrives before the children stab someone. Um, why don't we just pray to close? Loving God. Too often we're caught in unhelpful binaries. I just want to say thank you for your grace for letting your kids tell the story, for showing up for your beloved ones. And even though we get so much wrong, for you dwelling with us and amongst us, Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus, the center, help us to continue to follow you. Amen.